Welcome to the Interim Leader Podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Ledger, a partner and head of the Energy, Manufacturing and Infrastructure team at Odgers Interim. And this podcast follows on from our recent webinar, Preparing for a Zero Carbon Future, with speaker Dr. Graham Cooley, Chief Executive of ITN Power PLC. We had a tremendous response and a number of questions, which meant that we didn't have enough time to answer them all. And this podcast rectifies that. Graham, hi, thank you. And good morning. This is just following on from the, the webinar we did earlier in the year where we had a huge amount of interest in what you had to talk about, which then led to a number of, of good questions coming through, which we didn't have time to answer all of them. So very grateful for you to take the time this morning. First question was, I'd like to ask about the efficiency of green hydrogen from Adam Pope. Tom, thanks very much for inv inviting me back to answer the questions. Uh, I very much enjoyed the meeting that we had earlier. So, and the efficiency question, first of all. So, um, electrolyzers uh, take in uh, power and water, and they turn the electrons into molecules. And, and the efficiency uh, of that process is around 65 to 70%, depending on exactly how you operate the electrolyzer. But important to say that any loss of efficiency is actually comes out as heat and it's low grade heat. Actually, it's around 65 degrees C um, and, and that heat comes out in the cooling water. So if you recover the heat, uh, you can actually increase the overall efficiency of the system. And um, OWE when they did their trials um, at Ibbenburen in Germany, using, in Germany using one of our electrolyzers, got an overall energy efficiency of 86% by recovering the heat. They actually used the, um, the heat in, in a, um, for a gas preheater in a pressure letdown station. So uh, you can recover the heat, and if you do, you can get to 86% overall efficiency. Thank you. The second question we had was an anonymous uh, member of the audience. To make molecules, where are you or the customers getting the free carbon from? We uh, uh, make green hydrogen. So uh, we're interested in storing renewable power and turning that re stored renewable power into hydrogen. So uh, what you're doing is you're taking electrons renewable electrons because it's a renewable power and you're making a green molecule that is green hydrogen um, and there's no carbon whatsoever in that um, whole supply chain so green hydrogen is the only net zero energy gas now your question is if we turn that then from green hydrogen into um, a, a carbon-based molecule like sustainable aviation fuel or renewable methanol, where do we get the carbon molecule from? Um, and actually, if you're going to make a sustainable fuel by taking green hydrogen and reacting with a carbon molecule, then you need to get that carbon molecule by uh, uh, capturing CO2 from the atmosphere. If you use any other source of CO2, then you haven't got renewable fuel. So we start with the renewable power, we make renewable hydrogen, and then we capture a CO2 molecule from the atmosphere, 
and we react that with the uh, hydrogen and we make either a sustainable aviation fuel, which is kerosene, or uh, sustainable renewable methanol. Thank you. The next question was as follows and came from Mark Milton. Is it the case that the hydrogen in question originates in water and therefore as we produce the hydrogen, will we simply be draining rivers and lakes to supply the raw material? Yeah, so um, when you split water to make hydrogen, uh, the consequences of doing so when you look at the overall system are very important for the environment because hydrogen um, is the only fuel that has no CO2 uh, in its whole the, in its whole production in the whole supply chain. Also, um, hydrogen is the only fuel that um, has a, a complete balance in its production of water and of oxygen. So take the water first of all, which was the question. When you split water into hydrogen and oxygen, when you use the hydrogen, you get the water back. Okay, and, and in fact, when you split water into hydrogen and oxygen, you make a, a, exactly the right amount of oxygen for the amount of hydrogen. It's called the uh, stoichiometric ratio. So that when you uh, burn the hydrogen in the atmosphere, and get the water back, you get exactly the same amount of water back. So actually, green hydrogen, made by splitting water, is the only fuel, not only that has no CO2 in its supply chain, but also has a complete water balance and does not reduce um, the amount of atmospheric oxygen because it makes its own oxygen. So. To explicitly answer the question, you only borrow the water. You take the water, you split it, and when you recombine, you get the water back. So it's a closed water cycle. Not true of a fossil fuel. With a fossil fuel, you you actually um, use water in its uh, production, and you also use atmospheric oxygen when you burn it. Out of interest, are you able to use seawater? for the production of green hydrogen? Very good question. Actually, we, um, we, we announced a project called Oyster, which is joint with, um, uh, with Orsted uh, and Siemens Gamasa, not only integrating the electrolyzer to uh, wind turbines, but also integrating uh, desalination equipment. So we, we can use uh, seawater. In fact, many places in the world you might want to derive your clean water from seawater. So you don't use the seawater directly. You go through a desalination process, first of all, and you make uh, uh, clean water, and then you use that clean water uh, directly in the electrolyzer. Right, thank you. The, the next question is from my colleague, Jonathan Burke from Berwick Partners. Could ITM's technology lead to UK industry investing in new and exciting assets, given how expensive it is currently with UK energy prices? Yeah, so um, uh, UK energy prices and, and the, the um, uh, price of renewable power are a very, very interesting uh, area. 
I think the, the last contracts for difference auctions uh, came in at just under four pence per kilowatt hour, which was an, an astonishing achievement. Um, we, we now have the um, next round of CFDs just been announced. So Boris announced in his 10-point plan 40 gigawatts of offshore wind. Uh, next round of CFDs, uh, round four, um, is is um, is 12 gigawatts, and that that CFD round does not have negative price protection for the renewable energy companies. So now renewable energy companies are looking at the way in which they can protect themselves from negative pricing in the market. And actually, the best way of storing renewable power and having a, a, effectively a dump load for uh, renewable energy companies is to build an electrolyzer. Those electrolyzers then become very interesting um, assets and, and target assets for uh, private investors. Because what you can do then is, is turn a very, very low cost or even negatively priced electricity into molecules that you can sell to industry or to the gas group. So it's a whole new class of asset. And it's a whole new class of asset that is either going to be owned by renewable energy companies to protect their uh, pricing in the electricity market or owned by private equity organizations and project finance organizations. So the answer to the question is, Yes, very much so. The next question is from Tom Tom Taylor at the CPI in Teesside. So what do you think hydrogen will be converted into sustainable denser fuels for marine aviation versus direct hydrogen fuel? Yeah, so um, look, um, if you start with, um, with green hydrogen made renewably, then you have the building block a net zero molecule in the form of hydrogen. You, 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 there are then two uh, important um, areas of market derivatives from green hydrogen. Okay, the first one uh, is ammonia. And uh, ammonia is made by catching nitrogen from the atmosphere and reacting the green hydrogen with nitrogen in the Haber-Bosch process. And, and, and then you end up with ammonia, which is a very important marine fuel. And certainly as a target molecule, uh, an important molecule uh, for marine fuel, but also for transporting renewable power. So, you know, one of the propositions of, um, of hydrogen is that if you store renewable power, and say you make the renewable power in British Columbia or in Australia, and you want to export that renewable power to another country, you can uh, make a liquid fuel, you can make ammonia, and you can transport that all the way across the world. So um, actually um, making a liquid fuel from uh, hydrogen is not only an interesting proposition in terms of uh, marine fuel, uh, but also in terms of uh, uh, transporting renewable power. Um, the other very interesting target molecule, or 
two, actually. They involve the carbon molecule. They relate to a question I answered earlier, are um, renewable methanol and also a sustainable aviation fuel, where you capture a molecule of CO2, you react that with the green hydrogen, and, and you make, um, first of all, renewable methanol. It, it is very interesting because methanol is the building block for all of chemistry. So when, when you, um, the whole of the chemicals industry begins with natural gas that's reformed, turned into methanol, and then the methanol is used as a building block, not only for organic chemistry, but materials like polymers, for instance, are all made with that building block. So if you can make a renewable methanol, you end up with a whole renewable chemistry set. So um, you're, you're not only talking about uh, marine fuel as, as um, uh, a sustainable uh, methanol, but also the possibility of completely decarbonizing polymers as well. Fascinating, thank you. The next question is from Richard Smith. Uh, which key chemical carbon-based building block are you looking at being produced with this source of hydrogen? And do we have capability at scale in the UK to make this? Yeah, so it, it, that relates again to the question I asked earlier, but let me uh, uh, answer that question by going to the last part of the question, which is, do we have scale in the UK? So um, in the UK, CF Industries uh, have two ammonia production plants. Um, so there's a great possibility there for using um, a green hydrogen to decarbonize those processes. Um, and also uh, we make methanol in the UK at Salting. So we do make both of those carbon molecules in the UK uh, renewably. And there is also a possibility of us um, producing more and larger new synthesis plants for renewable ammonia and renewable methanol. So, I, you know, again, it is a potential uh, uh, new addition to British industry. And, and, and um, I can see uh, a very, very significant potential for us in the UK to ex exploit our very significant wind resources. And actually exploiting our wind resources could be potentially not only about using wind power in the UK, but exporting wind power by making renewable ammonia. And, and, um, and the export possibilities are, are very, very significant in the UK. In fact, um, OREC, the Offshore Renewable Energy Catalyst, uh, wrote a report, and in that report, they specifically reference being able to use UK offshore wind to make target renewable molecules and export those worldwide. Next question comes from Mark Rahn. How would you advise CEOs of similar businesses to raise funds for the first factory, AIM or venture capital, private equity? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on, in, on the company's stage of development. 
uh, in, um, in my own uh, experience, I, I uh, worked for a very large company that was national power and international power. I then did a number of VC-backed companies and raised uh, venture capital. Um, and um, ITM, of course, is a market-listed company. And, and so it depends on your individual circumstances. I mean, I, I um, my experience of doing uh, venture capital um, is that um, uh, the process is uh, a much longer one in terms of um, developing business plans um, and um, financing assets than it is, for instance, when you're market listed. Um, so I, it, it depends on your circumstances and your stage of development. I mean, the, um, uh, building the first factory for any company it is a major transition for that company. Um, and what you find with uh, venture capital organizations is many of them prefer a fabulous or a licensing model than a manufacturing model. Whereas if you are a market-listed company, actually the capital markets um, very significantly embrace manufacturing. Um, manufacturing is more capital intensive as a business model, but it does allow you to capture more intellectual property and more revenue than you would by a straight licensing model. So uh, uh, it depends on your individual circumstances, whether you're listed or whether you're uh, at the stage of venture capital. Um, but clearly a very important transition. Getting the business model right is absolutely important. And I think it, whenever you're funding your first factory, that will be the intense debate. It will be about why are you buying a factory in the first place? Why is manufacturing your business model? And is it the right business model um, for your equity partners going forwards? Interesting. Out of interest, with, with ITM, did you start off with uh, sort of private equity funding before listing and, and allowing an exit for the P investors? Or was it um, a good business plan which you took straight to the aim market? Yeah, so um, the very first funding round for um, uh, uh, ITM Power uh, was in 2001. Uh, and, and that funding round was a VC funding round. And actually the company IPO'd in 2004, so only three years later. So ITM Power actually only had a three-year window between originally raising uh, VC funding and, and doing its IPO and going on to the market. And, and actually, I would say that ITM Power has survived as a company because of its listing and because of the backing of the capital markets. And I, and I would say to you that if um, ITM Power had not been listed and had been a VC-backed company, it would not have survived because I do not believe that venture capital would have followed its money for that long. In fact, it would have had to have followed its money uh, for nearly 20 years. And I do not believe that that, that, that would have happened. So uh, um, ITM Power is here today in my view, because it listed on the London stock market early. 
And just to follow on on that point, would you say that compared to other companies, that the part of the reason for the success for listing of ITM is because you personally are very comfortable talking to the finances in the city of London, the, the stock market, the raise funds? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, did, I wasn't involved when the IPO was done in 2004. It was a, the management team uh, prior to me starting in 2009. So uh, uh, there were five years of market history uh, in ITM before I, I joined. Um, I, I, we've done a number of successful funding rounds. Uh, m- many of those have been based on very important partnerships that we've developed. So a funding round based on our first major project with Shell, then a funding round based on a cornerstone investment from Linda, and then a funding round based on a cornerstone investment from SNAM. So I think we've done fundamentally done the right things in the business to, to keep um, a, a great interest in what ITM Power is doing from the capital markets. I'd also say this, that the, the, um, the world, um, particularly over the last year to two years, has really understood the potential of green hydrogen. And the capital markets have, have really woken up to the use of green hydrogen in the energy transition. Um, and so there, there is even more enthusiasm now for the capital markets to fund companies like ITM Power. So, yeah, we have a great debate with the city. Uh, I think that um, uh, the knowledge in the city about green hydrogen is very, very significant now. And, and uh, the debate is intense. We do have one further possible question, which we touched on. Uh, again, it came from Richard Smith, uh, and that was, how are you dovetailing this with carbon capture and technologies for manufacture of organic molecules? Yeah, so carbon capture and storage has been very popular in the UK, particularly with the UK government. Um, and um, we, we've been through a number of um changes in enthusiasm for carbon capture and storage i mean carbon capture and storage the ultimate product is hydrogen it's called blue hydrogen and what you do is you take natural gas and you reform the natural gas and you make co2 and then you sequester co2 in an offshore uh, depleted oil field it requires you to continue using a methane infrastructure and it requires you to build two new infrastructures, a hydrogen one and a CO2 infrastructure. It also requires you to store huge amounts of CO2 and to look after them for a very long period of time. So somebody somewhere in the system has got to underwrite those CO2 stores for 100 years. So uh, my view, uh, first of all, is that it's best not to make the CO2 at all. And you can do that by producing green hydrogen, and you also get the benefit of energy storage for renewable power. Um, blue hydrogen is effectively um, oil and gas business as usual. The oil and gas industry continuing to use its methane infrastructure, which of course leaks. Uh, all of the pipes need sleeving and continuing to use natural gas. It is 
very difficult from an environmental point of view uh, because uh, methane is a very much worse greenhouse gas than CO2. Between 80 and uh, uh, um, 25 times, depending on what bracket of time you look um, across. But uh, probably most importantly, Tom, um, green hydrogen is coming down in cost so rapidly that now uh, many of the oil and gas companies are revisiting their business model for blue hydrogen, acknowledging, um, as many oil and gas companies have, um, that green hydrogen will be lower cost than blue hydrogen by the mid 2020s to 2030, in which case, if you build CCS, you'll have a stranded asset. And that's probably the more important argument that um, green hydrogen is approaching the cost now of, of blue hydrogen um, over the next few years, and by 2030 will be lower cost. So we wouldn't want to build major stranded assets that cost us billions in the UK. And, and, and just one further point to add to me, the oil and gas industry and those companies in the oil and gas industry who could mobilize very, very large amounts of capital are key to the energy transition. And I'm delighted to see the way they're responding to investors in the city about the energy transition. And we need them on the journey. And actually, we need to refocus the oil and gas industry away from blue hydrogen and towards green hydrogen. Just to follow on from that point, you hear um, in some courses the the argument that, that the blue hydrogen is needed to bring volume to the market to make that seismic change in consumer habits to enable us to have hydrogen refueling stations for our cars, our tractors, our lorries, etc. However, you're suggesting that with the cost of green hydrogen coming down to be lower than blue in the next uh, what? nine years that actually yeah that, that would in, that was would suggest that the volume of green hydrogen is going to be there to, to enable that change over to a, a carbon neutral yeah i i think um the industry will grow surprisingly quickly um people whenever uh technologists particularly think about transitions they, they never think about an S-curve or a rapid transition or a paradigm shift. They, they think about gradual change. They think about incremental things that happen slowly. Actually, transitions don't happen like that. And I think when the cost of green hydrogen begins to um, uh, meet the cost of grey hydrogen, first of all, which is used in huge volume industrially, you'll see a very, very rapid increase in growth. And as that growth increases, you'll see the associated reduction in costs. And it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy and will drive very, very rapidly. So, I, yeah, I, I do believe that cost reduction will be rapid. Volume uptake will be very rapid. And we'll see a, a, a genuine transition, a paradigm shift between carbonizing energy gases and net zero green hydrogen as, a, as the world's energy gas. Thank you very much.
that has been absolutely fascinating thank you ever so much for taking the time to answer those questions hugely appreciate it uh, i thoroughly enjoyed talking to you over the last couple of months no thank you tom for inviting me back and i enjoyed the questions and and uh, look forward to perhaps having another conversation soon thank you for listening please don't forget to like and subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes